Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Anil Banot. Anil is the managing partner of accountancy practice Banot & Co. Anil, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Hello, thank you. Thank, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you join us, Anil. Um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we begin by taking that word leader aside and considering it in a little bit more detail, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? I think the leader it's, it has to have some values and uh, whatever uh, problems are in the world, if he assesses them according to his values and is not then afraid to speak out uh, and and make a change, uh, you know, based on those values, provided obviously there's consensus as well that he 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 is sort of he, he knows how to get a consensus for uh, whatever he evaluates according to those values as uh, the, you know, the majority would, uh, then I think uh, uh, the leader simply, he has to uh, focus on it and, and just go for it, go for the change. I mean, it's really when uh, there is an outcome of that change, and then there is this fulfillment of that leadership ability, you know, um, and you know there are there are a lot of leaders people don't tap into their uh, inner inner self that can inspire that leadership you know it's because perhaps they are not uh, confident uh, about their own values you know and i think it's the value i mean you know for instance even in this black uh, lives movement you know it's the values uh, that people held on to that have come forward and the, those values uh, conflicted uh, with, let's say, the slave trade and those sort of uh, uh, past history, you know, then they took action. Um, in England as well, or in the UK, you know, we, we hold on to British values. And for instance, now the China, their value system is a bit different. So like, for instance, the Huawei project, you know, they have, I think the government has decided rightly not to go for it. Uh, because, you know, whenever values differ, uh, I think um, then really just to make money, <laughs> just to go after money, that's not the right way. And leader doesn't go after money just for the sake of money. You know, he, he will he, he will evaluate everything according to his values and uh, money will come afterwards. I mean, you know, money comes after. You know, that's the way, in fact, we work in Bannerton Company, uh, our accountancy practice. We give value uh, to our clients uh, first. And, you know, we've never, I mean, we, even if clients leave after, uh, according, you know, according to some different circumstance or something, they always sort of come back because we give value. So I think that is important, you know, mm-hmm. having your own values. and. Uh, always sticking by them. 
values of course within leadership are incredibly important and i think a lot of that is reflected in the culture that certain leaders instill within their businesses as well um we talked about values an awful lot there anil but when it comes to your sort of leadership model as it were how would you describe that well, my leadership model is, you know, I sort of, I became the general secretary of, I, I'm a founding member of Hindu Council UK as well uh, in 1994. And uh, then I was elected to be the general secretary uh, in the last decade when uh, uh, Tony Blair was in power the whole through the decade almost, you know. And uh, um, at that time, um, the for instance, the Hindu Council UK, it was fractured, you know, we have so many uh, Hindu denominations, Hindu factions, and every temple is uh, really sovereign by its own right, you know, so on. Uh, but I had to unite, and people at that time said, oh, you this will be very different for you to unite uh, the Hindus. But we did, you know. Um, for instance, uh, if one party said, uh, you know, eating fish or chicken or whatever is a sin, uh, let's say Swaminarayan, and the Bengalis, you know, they, they eat fish as a staple diet, and then sort of, you know, sit them around the table and uh, say, look, our this is our focus. Our focus is to uh, make policy for the British Hindus, for, for you know, at, at government level. And there, uh, those sort of differences, you know, don't really do mean much. You know, we need to, we need to, uh, we need to go beyond those differences. And where we unite are our, you know, overall similarities, and then we make policy. So, you know, the unity uh, came as a result all through the UK of, of all the denominations and. So the Hindu Council UK, you know, that's sort of the, the leadership in that sense. You know, people, you know, I, I mean, I didn't sort of, uh, leader doesn't have to then uh, be haughty about it. Or, uh, you know, he, yeah. I, I, I always acted as a coordinator. Uh, you know, you have to remain humble um, and uh, get consensus from everyone. Uh, and then you formulate uh, sort of one policy for, for, let's say, all the Hindus uh, that can go into legislation. And they all accept it, you see. So then that that's what, uh, that's my model, really, you could say. You know, I always try and reach consensus uh, among uh, all the interested parties. Mm. And uh, then people give and take, you know, they, they, they're not like people compromise. You know, so that 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 is what, uh, at least on the community front. I mean, that becomes uh, you know your leadership uh, sort of you know model uh, forte. Um, and then, I mean, after Hindu community, I mean, I've been in community. I mean, Epsing Minority Foundation and People Center in Leicester, um, and you know, again. I mean, with People Center Leicester, we do uh, a lot of other things like arts and performing arts in the theater. We have a theater, we have a restaurant, we have bars, we have uh, uh, children's nursery, you know, we have charitable uh, uh, events as well. Um, 
community organizations, we give space to, uh, to the women empowerment, so on. You know, we do a lot of things there. And that's all, I think, provided sort of, you know, you keep to your <laughs> values, uh, underlying values, uh, then I think all these things develop uh, by themselves, actually, because you find the right people, they come, they help you, they support you, and then it just it builds up like that. Mm. That's my model. I mean, my model, what I'm saying is, you know, people, I have, I'm very lucky. I have a lot of people then who come to help, who come to support me, you know. Even now at People Center, we started, as soon as uh, <clears throat> the Prime Minister uh, announced uh, the lockdown um, at the end of March, on 31st of March, I sort of, I spoke to um, my managers at People Center in Leicester and I said, we go to a restaurant and we have to close it, but, we have, you know, we have closed it, but we're going to use it now to help the vulnerable people in the area. And we started free meals service, you know. Uh, staff uh, was very good. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to volunteer and the community as well. I mean, I had, I had set up various other uh, clubs there, karaoke club. So all of these people came and they said, we will help, you know. Um, so, you know, if you have the right values, then actually people come to you, you know, pe- people, uh, pe- and then that's what makes, <laughs> well, I don't want to say makes me a leader, but that's what leadership is all about, you know. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is going through one of its most difficult tests ever in the current climate with the emergence of the COVID-19 situation, no less, Anil. How has it been for you from a business perspective, adapting to meet the challenges of the pandemic, but also from a social perspective as well in the work that you've been doing with the likes of the People Centre and also um, with the uh, the Hindu Council as well? Yeah, well, from the business side, I mean, we had to actually, as an accountancy practice, we had to continue doing our work. So we had Really, uh, I, we had uh, half half staff, half uh, 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 came to the office, and uh, even myself, um, being a little bit older and diabetic, I started working from home, and I have uh, my mother who's much older, so didn't want to expose her to any risks. Um, and so we managed really well, you know, because... Uh, a lot of the work was done then by telephone with the clients and, uh, 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 you know, they, they needed advice all the time, you see. Uh, you know, and Rishi Sunak, oh, superb, the chancellor, you know. And uh, I think both of them, Boris Johnson and uh, Rishi Sunak, they both make a formidable team, just like uh, Tony Blair and uh, Gordon Brown did. Um, and... Uh, Let's hope that will continue for long. Um, he's un- as he says, unprecedented moves, which uh, which have really helped our clients. Um, although on the bounce back loans, by the way, I'd like to say that I hope uh, the government will uh, monitor them afterwards. If if repayment doesn't come, you know, then there should be a mechanism of uh, uh, checking uh, that. You know, the money hasn't gone astray. Sure, I mean, Daily Mail reported that uh, somebody bought a Lamborghini and all that sort of thing. That, that's fine. I don't mind, the, the, you know, the money being uh, used 
for whatever the uh, the director wants to use it for. But the point is, you know, if it's not um, what I'm saying, if it's if it's not exactly for you know the, the business is getting into a bit, little bit of luxury items, that's fine. But so long as it repays, you know, that, that, then that's fine. I mean, uh, but. Uh, uh, from like we've, what I'm saying is we've had some clients saying, "Oh, I've got a dormant company, and uh, uh, can I apply for this loan?" Or he said, "We cannot help you. Then we advise against it." But the point is, um, you know, some of these loans are self-certifying as well, so we don't know what's happening. But in that case, there should be some sort of mechanism. I'm saying. I'm taking the opportunity to say now here yeah, that they that they should they should uh, if if repayment doesn't come they they have to you know they have to follow through the normal uh, you know directors fraudulent activities and whatever you know so that that's important I think yeah as well um, but the help has been fantastic uh, from the government and not only that. From DEFRA now, for for the I just spoke to you about the uh, free meal service, and has been very good to us. They gave us a grant for food costs only uh, in July and for early August, and actually because we've delivered it so well, um, they have uh, now <clears throat> given us uh, another ten thousand pounds for food food costs to continue our work for another few weeks. Um, so you know. The government has been really superb, you know, uh, in helping uh, to cope with this with this pandemic. That's in, uh, really encouraging uh, to hear, Anil. And uh, thinking about now what the uh, the next sort of twelve to eighteen months might hold as we sort of adjust to the uh, the new normal under the conditions of the pandemic. What do you envision on the horizon for you for Barnott and Company, and what do you really hope to achieve during this time? Um, I think, uh, you know, because there would be a, a, a slowdown in the economy, in my view, um, we will, we are here to help the, our clients. You know, we always, I mean, we take away their headache in whatever we can. Um, and I, I think what I really hope, um, not just from the business side, but also from the, from community side, from the ecology side, uh, that uh, this pandemic, it, it has taught us as well that uh, we can work differently. You know, we can work part-time from home as well. Um, and that reduces uh, pollution and so all sorts of things as well. So uh, I think, we, you know, the new norm should be that, that you know, Part work should be should be from home. Uh, even Parliament, I mean, you know, they can have these meetings uh, 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 on online meetings and so on as well. Um, so it doesn't. I mean, obviously, you need to you need to go to the office and you need to um, the shops, especially, you know. But you need to. But there is a part of the work that can be done from home, and uh, in fact, sometimes better. Uh, from home, so that you know, um, because otherwise, you know, there's a big toll on the ecology just through traveling and other knock-on effects that comes with with it. Uh, you know, and I think we need to sort of, you know, we need to sort of at least have a little bit more balance <laughs> that 
um, you know, we safeguard the earth as well. Um, and we can do that now, but we the time is now to sort of plan that, you see. The government has to give that leadership as well through its policies. Uh, and I think uh, I've heard that they are actually looking at the green policies more, more and more as well, and they're be funding those. So the, the, that's, that's, I think that's that's a good thing. I mean, there has to be, you know, so those changes, just slight changes, maybe 20% or something, you know, from the way we used to be, be used to be working, uh, you know. We need to hold on to those, you know. Um, and then hopefully, you know, like the carbon footprint, all this sort of thing, it'll, they'll work themselves out, you see, over the next uh, 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um, otherwise, mm. we always sort of panic, we don't do anything. But now is the time to actually start building those different ways of working, you know, which are, you know, as I said, the major part of that would be uh, sort of one day at home. Certainly going to be an interesting uh, few months ahead as we adjust to these uh, new challenges, Anil. And I think it would be great, um, given how informative it's been, having you discuss these issues with us, to perhaps have you back on the show in future just to see how things are getting on in a few months' time. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I think that would be fantastic. But most importantly, Anil, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we are only speculating at the moment. We don't know which way the pandemic especially is going to go. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that it's all positive trajectory from this stage. Yes. I mean, obviously, you know, social distancing is the key. And I mean, I have a NGO in in India as well, where we've also started the uh, premium service. Um, in Delhi, and there um, it was hard to sort of, you know, tell them to always uh, observe this social distancing, you know, two meters. India is, that's where the problem is with, with, you know, India has got very large population and it's very difficult for them (laughs) to observe two meter rule. Uh, Mm. But at least, you know, we're we're trying uh, that I think uh, until we get the vaccine, um, yeah, we have to continue with these rules uh, as they are. Uh, but hopefully, if we can get the vaccine by the end of the year, then uh, things will change. But, you know, my point about uh, the new norm is that actually we shouldn't just then um, again become free for all. You know, we should we should be at least Twenty percent, twenty-five percent. We should, we should learn to calm down in the fast-moving rat race. You know, we should. We can work from home, and that will reduce the pressure. It has a knock-on effect on various other things, especially pollution and uh, carbon footprint and so on. You know, so that would be good. Mm, certainly would, Anil. Um, I really hope that we can uh, speak again in future. And as I say, do take care and uh, do stay safer with all uh, still going on. Yeah, thank you. That was Anil Barnott speaking, Chief, uh, Managing Partner at Barnott & Co. Chartered Accountancy Practice. And for those tuning in today and listening to this, do continue to be sensible, look after yourselves and look after others, even with lockdown restrictions lifting, because it really does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, coming up next on today's programme, I'm going to be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with the former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, 
chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. Um, in fact, during his political career, Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, I've not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more 
creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's Uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And Mm -hmm. those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, We needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.